Good morning, church. Some of you may have been traveling for a while and uh, hadn't recognized that uh, we started a new series today, or this, this uh, new year, and uh, we are talking specifically about the character of God in this series. And um, as we do so, we recognize that when you talk about the character of God, there are some big things to be discussed. The character of God is no small issue. And as we, as we st- talk about it, we have to look at it from a, a pretty broad perspective. We have to look at the character of God on the easy days, the days when uh, everyone agrees that was great, that was wonderful. Look at him, he intervened and he helped somebody. He blessed those people, he raised that person from the dead. And everybody agrees that was a wonderful thing. Then we also have to look at it on the difficult passages in the scriptures. We have to be willing to recognize the character of God in both things and to take on both things as we do. So today we're going to talk about this in this, this is a three-part series. We're talking about seeing the character of God. And I've encouraged you to, as you open your Bible in the new year to, to attempt to see the passage that is talking about the character of God. Talking about seeing the character of God. We're talking about being the character of God. That'll be a, the next step we talk about. We'll talk about what it means to try to take those things in and represent those things. And then in the last part, we're going to talk about sharing it, sharing the character of God. So this morning, we're still talking about seeing it, and we're specifically talking about how the loving God faces rebellion. How does God face a rebellion? Before we get too much into that, I want to do um, a little bit of, of, uh, of review. Um, just remember that it all starts, the story, the story of the Bible starts with an accusation about the character of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. God had said, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And Satan says exactly the opposite. You're not actually going to die. That's an accusation about God's character. That's an accusation about, about God's truthfulness. That is saying, God isn't telling you the truth. God is a liar. God is a liar, Eve. And unlike a third grader in the, on, the, on the playground, you just can't stand up and yell, no, I'm not, no, I'm not, no, I'm not. And whoever gets the last no, I'm not wins the argument. Instead, the whole of Scripture is a demonstration of the truthfulness of God, of the gracefulness of His character, of the mercy of God. The whole of Scripture is a representation of what it means to interact with this same God, not standing there at the bush, but standing at the burning bush, and standing beside the river, and standing beside a grave, standing on the mountaintop, wherever He goes, wherever He interacts with people, These are the character representations of who God is. Remember that Genesis starts it out this way. In Genesis 3.1, God is misrepresented. Verse verse 8, fear enters man's world. Verse 17, the curse of sin comes to them. Verse 24, they're cut off from the tree of life. Verse 19, they were informed that to dust they shall return. If you go to the other end of the Bible and you look at Revelation, in chapters 21 and 22, God is vindicated. Chapter 21, verse 23. 22 verse 4, trust in God is restored. 22 verse 3, no more curse. 22 verse 2, access granted to the tree of life. 21 verse 4, death shall be no more. Do you see the picture? Can you see that these are bookends on a story? That a story that's being told here is about the character of God. 
If we miss this understanding of Scripture, we find ourselves down in the poppies, kind of lost for the real story. We're following the story of this person or the story of that person or the story of the other person, and we're not realizing that underlying all of this is a tale about who God is. And so when you're reading the story of Elisha or Elijah, look at it as a story about the character of God. When you're reading the story of David or of Samson, read it and understand it as a story about the character of God. As he interacts with people, fallen, broken, messy interactions with people, it's an understanding of his character. And it's an understanding of what it means to walk with him for you and me. Because we're just as fallen, just as broken, just as messy in our relationship with him. Judges chapter 6, verse 36. The Gideon question we asked last week. Gideon says, has this great question. This, this man of God, this champion of God, this man who's called a hero of God, asks the question, if you're truly going to use me to rescue Israel, Israel, as you promised, and then you fill in the blanks. Remember what he says? I'm going to throw this fleece down. If the fleece is wet and the ground is dry, then I'll know it's you. And the next day he goes, well, that was a mistake. Sorry. If the, if the ground is wet and the fleece is dry, that would actually be a miracle. And so he is questioning the character of God. And what I love about the story is God comes alongside and says, I understand you have a question. I understand you have a question. I understand you're worried. I understand you're going out in faith to do something that's really scary for you. So I'm going to help you out. I'm going to give you a little direction. I'll give you the wet fleece. I'll give you the dry fleece. I'll help you understand that I am, in fact, who I say I am, I am, and I can be trusted. Okay? This, the question of our world and the question of the secular world everywhere for the believer is this one. If God is love, according to 1 John 4, 8, that's what, it is, that's what he says. If God is love, why did blank happen? And you can fill in that blank almost any way you want. You can fill it in with all sorts of things, personal, national, global. I mean, it doesn't really matter. You can fill it in almost anywhere. But the character of God question is as real in people's lives today as it ever has been. Gideon wants to know if, you, if God can be trusted to go against the Amalekites in this battle. The rest of us want to know if God can be trusted to face whatever we're facing. Facing with our kids, facing with our spouse, facing about ourselves, whatever we're facing, can God be trusted to walk alongside us while we do it? That's the real question here. And the Bible is simply presenting evidence that he can be. Here's, here's what happened here. Here's what happened here. Here's what happened here. Here's what happened here. And it's telling us that, yes, he can be trusted. It is the question for all time. <clears throat> I want to cover a piece of the character of God that scares folks. If you knew there was a bridge out, would you tell folks? You're driving along on a foggy morning through the, the, the Thule's out here in Sacramento somewhere, and you happen to catch a glint off the flat face of that bridge as you're coming to it, and you realize almost too late that the bridge is out, and so you stop just in time. Your car pulls up to the edge of the bridge, or the edge of the broken part. As you stop, you're there. And you get out of your car and you go, oh, man, that was scary. And then you realize there might be more people behind me and it's still foggy and it's still uncomfortable. In fact, it's getting darker. What would you do? Would you just get in your car, turn around, drive away and say, sorry, guys. Would you maybe turn your car around, point the headlights out into the fog? Would you park your car sideways across the road? What would you do? 
most of us would try to figure out some way to warn people about the fact that the bridge was out, right? Is warning someone about a bridge being out a good thing or a bad thing? Good thing. Good thing. I think one of the things we misunderstand about Scripture is that God is constantly warning us that there's a bridge out. If you don't warn someone, it's negligence at its best. It's a callous disregard for life or a venomous intent to kill if you don't warn the, pe- the person about impending death. Correct? Correct? You agree with that statement? I'm setting you up for something, so if you agree with that statement, okay... It also means that you might want to think about how you talk to other people as well, but we won't go into the evangelism discussion on this right now. But I just want you to recognize what that says. It's callous disregard for another person to just walk away from that bridge that's burned out, that, that's fallen down, and say, hey, not my problem. I didn't break it. I didn't cause it. If you don't see it, that's on you. Wouldn't most of us think that anybody doing that is just the most callous person? Psalm 1, verses 4 through 6. First, first half of Psalm 1 is, oh, the believers are in good shape. Second half of Psalm 1. The ungodly are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. But the way of the ungodly shall what? Perish. Now, is this a threat or a warning? Are you sure? Because a lot of us look at these kinds of things and we think of them as threats. We read these things and we think, see, God's shaking his fist at the ungodly and saying, you ungodly, you're going to perish. You're going to perish. If I say to you, I'm throwing you off the bridge. Is that a threat or a warning? Maybe a little both, right? But it's really a threat, right? Because I'm saying, this is what I'm going to do to you. I'm going to cause you to fall off the bridge because I'm throwing you off. If God is saying that this road doesn't have a good ending, it's a warning, not a threat. And if you read the passages of Revelation that frighten you to death, if you read those passages that are all about how the kings of the earth destroy this and how this horrible stuff happens there and that happens over there, and it's just frightening. If you read the passages as threats, then they're very scary and they cause you to tremble a little bit. But if you read them as warnings, they're an act of mercy from a gracious God. Do you see the difference between a warning and a threat? There has never been a bridge on this road. You can't get to the promised land from here. You're going to come to the end of this road. The way of the ungodly leads to perishing because there's no other road. There's no bridge and there's never been one. It's not that the bridge is out. The bridge was never built. You can't get there from here. So with this, holding this in mind, I want to talk to you about how God deals with rebellion. A very specific rebellion. Someone asked me to talk about this passage. I probably wouldn't have talked about it if they hadn't asked me. How does a loving God deal with rebellion, out-and-out rebellion? This is Numbers chapter 16. If you have your Bible with you, there's, I'm not going to cover all the, all the text, and so you may want to just turn there for yourself. 
I'll cover the majority of things, but the, sort of the core issues. Korah, the son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and On, son of Peleth, became insolent and rose up against Moses. With them were how many? 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. So is this an uprising from a corner of the store where nobody cares? Now, this is right in the core of things. This is a leadership council of God. This is the leadership council of Moses that this uprising is coming from. These guys are leaders in the camp, Levites. And leaders, every single one of them, 250 joining Korah, Dathan, and Abiram in this rebellion. Verse 3. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. So what's their basis of their argument? The basis of their argument is, Who do you think you are? Right? The basis of their argument is, we're all holy, we're all listening to God, we're all in one-on-one relationship with God. Who do you think you are? Why then do you set yourself above the Lord's assembly, Moses and Aaron? Why do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? Now remember who these people are. Remember what they've just come through. They've gone out of Egypt. They're out in the desert. All the things, they're they're actually at the foot of Mount Sinai as this rebellion and all this craziness is going on. So who do you think you are, Moses? Well, remember when we came to the edge of the Red Sea? How were you guys doing that day? Remember when I went up on the mountain and God gave me the tablets of stone that he wrote on with his own finger? Didn't see you guys there. Wouldn't that be your argument? Be my argument. I'd start showing them slides. See this picture? This is me going through the Dead Sea. Oh, that's you. Look, you look kind of scared. Oh, see that? That's my rod that turned into a snake. Oh, yeah, that's my rod that touches the stone and the water comes out. Oh, yeah, that's me going up the mountain again to talk with God. Who do you think you are? He doesn't do it, though. He doesn't bring out his credentials. He's offended for, he's in, offended for God. You, Korah, and all your followers are to do this. Take censers and tomorrow put burning coals of incense in them before the Lord. The... The man the Lord chooses will be the one who is holy. You Levites have gone too far. How's Moses feeling about this? He's offended. He's angered. You Levites have gone too far. I want to add this time because this is like the 40th time. Moses summoned Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, Eliab. But they said, we will not come. Isn't it enough that you have brought us out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in this wilderness? Where's the land flowing with milk and honey? It's where they're going. Where did they apply the title that God applies to the promised land? Egypt. 
They said, you've taken us out of Egypt, the land flowing with milk and honey, and you've brought us out in this wilderness to die. And oh yeah, you keep telling us, there is a land flowing with milk and honey. We haven't seen any milk. We haven't seen any honey. All we've seen is manna. Manna every morning, manna every night, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's manna, but manna bread, manna burgers. It's manna everything, manna all the time. Getting sick of manna. I'm ready for some milk and honey. Now imagine trying to lead a few million people. Imagine trying to lead just a few hundred thousand people. Imagine just trying to lead 10,000 people. This is what Moses is dealing with. This is a rebellion of folks who are saying, you brought us out here to kill us. Moreover, you haven't brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Do you want to treat these men like slaves? No. We will not come. How do you like these guys? You feeling good about Korodath and Abiram right now? Say, yeah, those are my guys. I like that attitude. Are you feeling a little bit upset with them, maybe? A little disturbed by the content of their action? Does this rebellion seem to be a threat? What's the threat? They're claiming to kick Moses, that they should kick Moses and Aaron out of their leadership, right? And where is the destination of their leadership? Back to Egypt. They want to go back to Egypt. You told us this great story about where we were going. Here we are out in the middle of the desert, and we've got nothing. Here we are stuck out in the middle of the desert... We haven't seen any milk. We haven't seen any honey. We've got this manna stuff every day. We're getting a little sick of that. We're getting a little sick of you and your brother. And you telling us what to do. No, we are not coming. We're not showing up just because you told us to show up. What do you think we are? Your slaves? So what do you think should happen next? What would you do? Honestly, if you're in charge of this group... What would you do? Let them go back. Okay, you and all your followers, leave. Get out of Dodge. Okay. What if the whole group follows them? What's at risk? Would you be upset if you were in charge of leading these people? Okay. Is it a real threat? Then Moses said, this is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things. That it was not what? My idea. You remember how this story starts, right? Moses is happily tending sheep out there by Mount Sinai, just minding his own business. He left Egypt 40 years ago and he's left it so far behind he doesn't even want to think about it anymore. Just taking it easy, minding the sheep, taking care of the sheep. And then all of a sudden he sees a bush that's burning but not really on fire. He goes over to the bush and he starts having a little conversation with the bush. You know, the Adam and Eve story should be a warning to folks. But he still does. He has this little conversation with the bush. And the bush and he have this conversation and God says, Oh, by the way, Moses, this is me, God, and I have an assignment for you. Did Moses say, Yippee, I've been wanting to do that. He did not, did he? He said, I don't want to do that. Send somebody else. I I can't talk. I can't do anything. I can't do it. 
Moses, I want you to do it. But Lord, you, you know me. I stutter. I'm not good at that sort of thing. I've forgotten all my Egyptian. I'm not good. You don't want me to do this. And he says, Moses, I want you to do this. All right. If I have to. It's like when you tell your kid to take out the trash. Okay, if I have to. So Moses heads off and he leads the people to this point. And he tells them, look, guys, you who want to go back to Egypt, I just want you to know one thing about this. Your exit from, from uh, Egypt was not my plan. I didn't volunteer for this. I didn't want to do this job. It was not even my idea. Then he says this of these men. If these men die of natural death and suffer a fate, this fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. So what's the showdown here? The showdown here is if those guys live through the day, I'm not in charge. I'm not the guy God sent. Let that be the deal. Now I want you to take it to another moment. Up on top of Mount Carmel, Elijah has gathered all the prophets of Baal and Asherah, and he has them set up a... a, a, a um, Thank you. Has <laughs> them set up an altar and pray to their God and try to get him to light the fire on the light the fire on the altar. All day long they pray. All day long nothing happens. He taunts them. Remember, he taunts them. He tells them, yell a little louder. Yell a little louder. Perhaps he's on the po- toilet. You should go and yell a little louder. It's actually what he says in the Hebrews. That is the, the translation of the actual words. Maybe he's in the bathroom. He can't hear you. Yell a little louder. He's got the stereo up too loud in there. Nothing happens. He builds his own altar. He puts a sacrifice. He pours water over the whole sacrifice. Fire comes down from God out of heaven and consumes it. Why was there a showdown there? Because the whole nation was going after a false god, going in the wrong direction. The bridge is out in that direction. In fact, there's never even been a bridge out there. And he says, guys, this is the way. If God is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. We had it in Gideon last week, the story of Gideon. That great little moment when Gideon tears down the altar and he burns everything up and he uses the statue of, of Baal and the, and the Asherah pole for a fire to, to sacrifice the bullock for God's altar. <coughs> Excuse me. And the answer comes, look, if Baal's really a God, let him fight for himself. Here we have Moses saying, if I brought you out here on my own pretenses, if this was my idea, then those guys will die like everybody else, natural causes. But if something different happens, God sent me. That's the showdown at this moment. Do you know what happens to these guys? Are you familiar with this story? If the Lord brings about something totally new and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them and they go down alive into the realm of the dead, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. Moses has just drawn the line in the sand, hasn't he? Do you know what happens next? The earth opens up. Now, by the way, the first thing God tells Moses and Aaron is... Back up. He does. You read the text. The first thing he tells those guys is, get away from Korodathan and Abiram. Get a distance between you and them. Now, I wonder how those guys felt when the whole nation of Israel started doing this. Just far enough? Just go as far as Moses goes. 
wherever Moses is will be good. And the Bible says the ground opens up. Everything they own and everyone in their family falls into this hole. And it closes behind them. And the 250 men who were in rebellion with them begin to cry out and they flee, shouting, the earth is going to swallow us too. You know what's interesting about these 250 brave souls who were standing with them a few minutes ago? They obviously backed up far enough that they did not get swallowed up with Tor, Dathan, and Abiram. When they saw Moses and the rest of Israel backing up, these guys who were in rebellion, yeah, we're going to follow, they were now far enough away that when the ground opened up, they weren't next to these guys. Beware of followers like these. They take off. They run off. The Bible says fire came from God and consumed the 250 men with their offering and their incense. How are you feeling about God? This scary. of God suddenly change? Did it become vicious and violent and mean all of a sudden? What were the stakes? We've talked about the difference between national leadership and personal leadership with God, right? That when God is leading the nation of Israel, there's different rules. When God is dealing with this rebellion from the nation of Israel, there's a different rule here. Understand some things about the people there. Understand that there's not the high value you have in our culture for, for human life. That's just a given, difference in the culture. So much death, so many people sick and dying, so many babies dying, that there's kind of a normalcy to it. They don't have the exalted picture of life that you have today. So one, that wasn't going to bother them as much probably as it bothers you. But do you think Israel understood to whom God was speaking after this? The passage continues. The story continues, actually. As God starts dealing with this rebellion. The next morning. Now, you gotta, to me, sometimes I read, especially the Exodus story, and I think, what are you guys thinking? Why do you keep going back to the same well? Why do you keep going after the same mistake over and over again? The next day, the whole Israelite community does what? Grumbles against Moses and Aaron. You've killed the Lord's people. And Moses said, no, I didn't. I didn't do a thing. I just said, if these guys are alive at the end of the day, God didn't pick me and God handled it. A plague starts in the crowd. I don't know what kind of plagues fall on these guys. When a plague hits these guys, it is not going to take a couple of days for this to start landing. It happens immediately. Moses tells Aaron, go get your censer and stand at the, at the brink where this plague is spreading. And stand in between the people and prevent this from continuing on. The Bible says 14,700 more people died. Is this a hard day? Do you think it was a hard day for God? See, one of the problems we have with these stories is we forget that the people on the story in the story we think are wearing the white hats are God's children. And the people in the story we think are wearing the black hats 
they too are God's children. There's nobody in any of these fights that's not one of God's children. When David stands there with his slingshot, looking up at a nine-foot man and spinning a rock in the air, the guy, the little guy with the slingshot and the big guy with the staff like a weaver's beam, they're both God's children. And he knows the interaction in the heart and everything about those people. And his heart breaks for one of them hits the ground. Don't discount God's heart because of your opinion. This problem isn't over. It continues on into the next chapter. The Bible says, God says, I'm going to be done with this mess. Go get the staff of every leader of the tribes, all of the 12 original tribes. Get me the staff. Bring them here. He brings the staffs in, he writes staffs in, and he writes the names of each person on the staff. He said, now take those in to the place of meeting, to the Holy of Holies, set them there, and leave. You remember what happens to Aaron's staff, Aaron's rod? Aaron's rod buds, flowers, and produces almonds overnight. Just in case they didn't recognize the bud, he decided to let it flower. Just in case they didn't recognize the flower, he decided to produce almonds overnight. And they brought out all the people's staff and they said, Is it clear now to you which one God has chosen? I proved it was me yesterday, Moses says. I'm proving you to you today. God proved to you today that it's my brother. That we're not here on our own. We were chosen by God to lead this people. Not back to Egypt, but all the way to the promised land. And he puts down the rebellion that day. These are God's words. The staff belonging to the man I choose will sprout. And I will rid myself of the constant grumbling against you by the Israelites. God is trying to stop Israel from being in rebellion against Moses. Is this a strong line? Is it a harsh moment? Yes, it is. But it is not outside the character of God to try to get the people of Israel into the promised land. It is not outside the character of God to do what needed to be done to move them there. You might have wished for a different thing. I might have wished for a different way. Maybe they could have voted. Maybe they all could have put their hands up and voted. Maybe they could have passed out little sheets. And everybody could have put an X on the one for Moses and a Y on the one for Coradathan and Byron. I don't know. But I know this is how God decided to deal with it. Because there was no bridge the way they wanted to go. And there never will be a bridge. There's no way to get to the promises of God by going back to Egypt. There's no way for you to get to the promises of God by going back to Egypt either. You know how tempting it is? You know how tempting it is. To just kind of say, okay, slogging along toward the promised land in the desert's been a little tough. The sand gets around my feet and in my shoes and I'm dragging through and it's hot and I don't like it. And I'm not there yet, and I haven't seen any of this. I haven't seen any of this milk and honey. I'm surviving out here on manna. Sometimes we think it feels like it might be closer to go back to Egypt. 
It might be easier to follow the path we've already cut. But there's no bridge there. You can't get to the promises of God by heading back to Egypt. Let me end with something maybe just a little lighter. Would you trust this man? Now some of you look at him and go, who in the world is that? And Greg said, I don't know who that is. And Greg trusts him. Would you trust him if he was the Yankees general manager? That's what I want to know. This is Billy Bean. Billy Bean's the general manager of the Oakland Athletics. Since the baseball season ended, Billy Bean has dismantled a team that has been in the playoff hunt for the last four years running. Dismantled, you won't even recognize. You go to an A's game this year, you won't hardly know anybody on the, on the field. Torn the thing apart. While I was at uh, Leone Meadows, I couldn't get very many phone calls, but I could get text messages. I'm sitting in a meeting, pastors talking about some really significant spiritual stuff about how to reach the, the next generation. I get a text message from my next generation son. It says, did you see the trade that Billy Bean made today? I'm thinking, who's left to trade? He said, No. So, my son outlined the trade to me. Another person whose name I know for three people I've never heard of before. But I will go into this season believing that this will be a competitive team. You know why? That guy has a track record. He has done this over and over and over again. And the first time I thought he was crazy. Next time, okay, maybe he knows what he's doing. By the third or fourth time he'd sold everybody I knew, I started to think, well, he's got a plan. And this year I'm looking back, looking out at the baseball season saying, April's coming and Billy's got a plan. Because he has a track record. Because he's done this before and I've watched and I trust him. I barely know the guy. I know him from his pictures. I mean, if I bumped into him on the street, I would know it was Billy Bean I was bumping into. And not Brad Pitt. (laughs) Inside joke. But I trust him. Would you trust this one? You see, what he did by coming to the planet and living here was lay down a clear track record. You see, most of the interactions with mankind in the Old Testament are muddled by the interaction with mankind. You keep hearing all these people who are doing crazy things, and they just and there's God. He keeps interacting with them. And it just gets really weird and wild. He came in, in the flesh to lay down a track record we could understand. So the question when you're looking at the story of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, how the ground opens up and swallows them. And 250 others who were in a rebellion, that fire came from the presence of God and consumed. And the 14,700 who continued to rebel the next day, 
The question is two-pronged. Can you figure out a better way to handle the rebellious group? And do you trust the track record that God has laid down? You see, I can't explain the whole story to you. I don't think anyone could. And I think part of those first days, hours, weeks, and months in heaven is trying to understand the difference. I do know that there was no way to the promised land going back. That the only way to the promised land was to continue forward. And that these people were trying to take Israel back. And it seemed like me, to me that that needed to be stopped. And it was. And it seems to me, having seen the historical record of Jesus, the biography, that the character of God, the personhood of God, that God as he is in Christ can be trusted. So when you come to this story, the story that's like this one, the final question I think we need to ask is, would you trust this man? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are we're confused because we sit in this little planet we live on. And we have hearts that go out to people in certain ways. And our choices and our activities and our thinking doesn't always align with yours. Today we choose to believe in the track record laid down by Jesus. We choose to take the whole of your character references. We choose by faith, not by sight. In your name we pray.